Welcome to One Square Mile in North East Fife, a podcast from the University of St Andrews. I'm Ruth Sanderson and in each episode I'll be chatting to one of our academics about their life and the real world impact their research has on all of our lives. Today I'm joined by Professor Karen Gentry from the School of International Relations. Um, I grew up partly in the Boston area and partly in Texas. Quite far apart. Very far apart. Um, My parents were Texans. My family historically is Texan. Um, And so it wasn't a huge leap to move down there. Uh, Culturally, yes. Or, I mean, there was a considerable amount of culture shock, but it was also quite familiar. What age were you when you moved there? I was 11. Um, It was the start of the 90s. And, and it was just, it was just very different. There was a more materialist culture moving there. Um, there was more, you know, there, yes, there was more emphasis placed on kind of looks and being cute and, you know, not being critical or outspoken. So yes, I did find that difficult and it certainly shaped me politically as well as, um, what I study, what I do. Wow, you've just said a whole lot in one sentence there, Karen. <laughs> Let's talk about that a bit more because I'm fascinated about 11-year-old Karen winding up in Texas uh, at the start of the 90s. Just describe it to me. What was it like? Um, we were coming just after one of the busts. So while we were in an affluent area, there was still real evidence of hardship and suffering. Um, the You know, I came from the Boston area where Dukakis was governor of Massachusetts and then he ran for president against... Michael Dukakis. Michael Dukakis, yes, thanks. And he ran for president against um, George H.W. Bush and I was, of course, just incredibly outspoken about being a Democrat and supporting him. And while we lived in Austin, which is still very much a Democrat stronghold, the, the area we were in was not... So I think then looking at the Ann Richards, Clayton Williams gubernatorial race, I don't remember what year, early 90s, and Clayton Williams was winning initially but lost because he made this horrendous statement about rape. And I remember being appalled, and yet none of my friends were because his republicanism mattered more. Or my friends um, just couldn't understand why I found that appalling. And that just kind of continued throughout my time in Texas of me really identifying more and more with kind of democratic principles of support for welfare, education, um, pro-choice, and everyone else not. Well, I grew up as in a very uh, Christian household, and my parents had actually moved to New England um, to do a, what's called a church plant. So they're um, Protestant from a very Southern denomination. They were leaders in the church. Um, It's probably one reason why, right, I lived within this church community um, and so never quite then fit in in the public schools because we're always 
I was always different. My family was always slightly different. So I think that Christianity definitely dominated our our lives, um, and that was just all part of it. So when we moved to Texas, my mother kept saying, you're going to love it. The values are the same. Um, you're going to fit in. And to an extent, that was true, but to another extent where social justice, for me, I didn't articulate it at that time, was very much a Christian value to me, but it didn't resonate in the South quite as well. I think that's always been quite an interesting dichotomy about um, about faith and conservatism in America, that, you know, on one hand, you've got uh, the idea of, uh, of Christianity being based, being quite a socialist thing and being based around social justice and about equality and fairness and grace. But then you've got another school of thought, which is that faith is actually, or religion is, uh, you know, a set of rules and it's, uh, it's pro-gun, it's uh, pro-life, yeah. And it doesn't necessarily celebrate women, I think would be kind to say. Did you find that? Yes. I mean, again, the denomination I grew up in was very conservative and it had traditionally some very strict rules about what women could do. And so women, you know, couldn't preach from the pulpit, couldn't pray, couldn't lead singing, couldn't pass communion plates. It just was very limited. And that absolutely in part defined me because it took me a long time to find my voice and to be comfortable with my voice. Um, I remember going to camp, uh, a Christian camp associated with the denomination, and it was all about preparing men to preach, but it was for girls and boys, um, of course, not recognizing anything non, um, non-binary. And that we... We had to work on a sermon all week, but we weren't allowed to give it. So it was just, there were some really bizarre notes that to be, I was surrounded by strong women, um, but they had to be strong in a different way. Um, And and that I think that was probably fairly confusing at times for me um, to witness. And, you know, the the more I went through kind of high school and really wanting to have a career um, from the time I was eight, if I didn't know what I wanted to be, I'd kind of have a panic attack. Mm-hmm. So I'd always known that I was I would do more than just kind of, in some ways, what I was surrounded by. Do you still feel a conflict at all about, about your, your background? Oh, absolutely. And I've tried to write about it some. I do some feminist theology um, where I've tried to really explain and position where I'm coming from. I mean, I would say I now more struggle with with organized religion. Um, and I, I don't struggle as much with my faith because that's present, but I struggle with how people tell me I ought to worship and be and place those expectations on me. Um, in part, my first job was back at a university affiliated with my denomination. And it was a good place. They were very supportive. But there were times that I really had to bite my tongue. Um, That if I wanted to keep my job, if I wanted to be promoted, I knew there was stuff I couldn't say. Um, And it was hard to be a single woman in that environment. Um, 
I, you know, I had to be everything. I had to be very engaged in the church. I had to teach. I had to do research. I had to have students over like once a month. I mean, and I watched my colleagues do it and often do it with spouses that could support them in doing it. And, um, you know, I was working on uh, master's in theology and, and teaching my church class and writing a book on theology and still being told what I was doing was not good enough faith-wise. Um, and that was, I would say, very damaging. Um, it's been very hard for me to go back into a church unless I have a purpose for being there other than worship and community mm-hmm. because I just feel this incredible sense of um, expectation um, and, and just wait, and it, it wears me out. So tell me about your time at St. Andrews. Well, so my I did my PhD at St. Andrews. I did my undergrad up in New England at a women's college and then straight into my PhD and then back to the Texas. Came in 1999. I mean, the university, I think I always loved it, you know, that it was small, but it was world-class <laughs> education, that I had just amazing professors that could really speak from their research and from their deep-seated knowledge. But for me, I think there's always been a sense of of coming to this beautiful small town um, that's not as far north as people think it is. So I um, I came um, in part because of the Center for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence. Um, CSTPV. CSTPV. Yes. Um, and because I wanted to really look at terrorism at the time, I wanted to look at terrorist groups and peace processes. Why did you want to look at terrorism and terrorist groups? I had studied uh, ethnic conflict in my undergrad. I'd taken a class on it, and I found it really just fascinating. Um, and it's not meant to be macabre or grow, uh, morbid, but fascinating as to why people chose violence, kind of what led them down that pathway. Um and I wanted to engage in that more. And my um, year-long project at Mount Holyoke, um, where I did my undergrad, had focused on um, the peace processes in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. particularly the Belfast um, Agreement. And I wanted, I thought um, Mitchell's approach to that was pretty phenomenal mm-hmm. um, in bringing in all these different voices. Senator George Mitchell. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to kind of narrow down onto... Um, how terrorist organizations engaged in that. Um, in the end, though, I was taking my terrorism studies class with Professor Paul Wilkinson in that spring, and I had written an article, a paper on women um, and women's participation. He kept saying, you need to do your PhD on this. And I kept saying, no, I'm not. I'm done with women. You know, I did that on my Holyoke, <laughs> and now I'm done. I'm done with women. Yes. And he kind of just kept after me pretty much all through about March. And then he gave me a book and said, go home and read it this weekend. And I can't quite even remember what book it was, but it really annoyed me, um, the gendered assumptions about women's participation, right? That they um, were there because of boyfriends or husbands or they were, you know, sociopathic and just needed to live out their pathology um, or they were, you know, and if they even, if the authors even used kind of language of pathology, it was more, they were just mentally unstable, crazy, and I don't like using crazy, but it was that kind of 
language and imagery and narration about why women participated. Um, and I became just so annoyed. And so the next week came in and said, fine, you kind of win. And so rewrote my proposal um, for admission and that the rest is kind of history. So tell me a bit about your your specific interests at the minute, your real fields of study that you, you yeah. want to drill into. Now, here I am 20 years later, I work on gender and terrorism. And then I kind of take a break from that and go back to looking at theology um, and a feminist political theology. Um, and then I've kind of picked up a feminist foreign policy and... Um, if, you know, Scotland and the SNP Manifesto have identified doing a feminist foreign policy here, and so I'm beginning to try to figure out what that actually would look like. This is fascinating, I think, the idea of nation states having foreign policies mm -hmm. that are feminist, yeah. feminine or masculine, I mm -hmm. guess you would say. Is that how you would describe it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, feminist or masculinist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between the two? What feminists would say is that historically in international relations and foreign policy within that, we have prioritized masculine values, right? Um, kind of aggression and defensiveness. So then prioritizing a military solution um, instead of perhaps more peaceful or diplomatic solutions of um, valuing competition over collaboration um, of maybe isolationism over cosmopolitanism um, and um, what could also go in is that feminists would say that there can be an element of care, a pretty strong element of care, and how international relations um, practitioners conduct themselves in their policies, and that that has been lacking in um, maybe historically always, but certainly in you know, the Cold War than in the post-9-11 world. And of course, now that I think we're finally past 9-11 as a dominating narrative of international relations, and we're beginning to recognize right, the climate crisis and um, poverty and the Anthropocene has led to the pandemic, right? that we have to do more that is collaborative and is human-focused. And that is, to me, very feminist. If you're going in that, that rationale, the big powers in the world that were still masculine. I mean, yeah. the likes of China, Russia, America, yeah. and even yeah. post-Trump are still very, very masculine. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's not to say that they're not up against it. And you can read, there is a document that says um, how the U.S. can have a feminist foreign policy. And I read it thinking, no. Um, because <laughs> there's just so much change that has to happen. Yeah. And Mexico has said, oh, we have a feminist foreign policy. And I'm like, no, no, you don't. And I think so then it may be that it's a slow burn, right? And big, deep change happens slowly. It doesn't happen overnight. But isn't this a political thing as well? Because the, the policies you're describing are by and large quite left wing, mm. quite socialist. So if you um, don't have a socialist government, yeah. isn't it harder to have feminist yeah. foreign policy? I don't know if I use the language of socialism. Um, but I can see why, right? Emphasis on social welfare, emphasis on state spending, on taking care of people. Um, and, I, and so it does have to be a change. And I think a foreign policy 
as Stephen Gethins has talked about, right, our professor of practice in IR, um, that foreign policy reflects the internal dynamics of a, of a country or of a nation state or of a state. And so given Scotland as, you know, a country within the United Kingdom, the poli- you know, I think if we see the policy since devolution, we see policies and voting patterns that really emphasize care. Um, and really emphasize taking care of, of people and recognizing um, economic inequality and trying to minimize economic inequality of bringing in migrants and refugees and asylum seekers. And I mean, and I think you can identify with justice without having to identify with maybe perhaps socialism, right? Um, but I think there are, yeah, it gets complicated. And there's some... There are uh, shades. There are shades. There are shades. Yeah. So I don't think it's then a stretch to create a feminist foreign policy that still reflects these things. But it does take a pretty deep um, epistemic shift or how we think about what we ought to value and prioritize in the world. Let's go back to your earlier work. Yeah. I'm really interested in... Uh, that that early spark for you of women within terrorism and what brings women into terrorism. Are there very different factors that bring women in than bring men in? No, not really. So that's been, I mean, always the case has been that women must have be different in some way because there's this basic assumption in in the West, right, that women are more nurturing, more peaceable, um, less rational, more emotionally driven, kind of less politically um, minded or intelligent. And then men, of course, are the opposite. And, um, and that's based off of kind of ancient Greek gender dynamics that we've just adopted uh, in Western Europe and America and just brought up. Um, and brought to the forefront. And of course, I think it was made worse by the Victorians um, and their very gendered dynamics. And so then when you hear that, you know, women are more peaceable, so therefore shouldn't be fighting in wars. Um, Women are more peaceable, so therefore shouldn't be terrorists. So when they do those things, there must be something wrong with Mm -hmm. them. And that really has dominated kind of the literature. And so one of my primary goals in my PhD was to try to kind of unpack that and to see what drove women into these groups. So I looked at women involved in the Marxist-Leninist groups um, in West Germany, the um, Palestinian resistance movements starting in the late 60s, and then in the United States. And I really tried to hone in and focus on the gender dynamics and the group as a whole um, women's own sense of those gender dynamics, and then also if they were politically driven, right? Did they care about the politics? And what I consistently found over and over and over is that they were just as politically minded as men. And so then there's also this discussion of, well, women must have faced some tragedy or some shame or some hardship that brought them in, right? That there's a theory that women who participated in suicide bombing were raped, and that was the only way that they could recover their honor. That's kind of unfounded. Um, and that there's and there's no discussion of emotional motivation for men. Um, but what 
I discovered during my PhD and then subsequently is that men and women are both driven by some emotional reasoning, right, of Palestinians, of, of watching, you know, homes be destroyed, family members killed, people being imprisoned, the sense of injustice, right, that's emotion. Both men and women feel that. But then that there's a, there's a political reason and activity um, or political onus to, to justify the activity for both men and women. And in the groups that I studied for my PhD, all the women were writing ideology. All of them were speaking quite clearly and articulately about what, why they were engaging and why they saw violence as a solution. Um, and then that's, that's just continued. So what's frustrating to me is that with ISIS in you know, um, the 2010s and with the women and the, the very young women joining from the UK and Europe and the US and not understanding why would they go do this. And this is contrary to what women do and talking about them as schoolgirls or right as um, groomed or misguided. And that yet again is kind of this denial of agency of seeing this kind of essentialism and in women and that they shouldn't be doing those things and this is deeply unnatural when we didn't quite query it for all of the thousands of men who went and joined. Of course, they're political. They can be political. And so it's, you know, there are times where I feel like I'm screaming behind a brick wall and that's to paraphrase another um, feminist. But, you know, like, no, we have answers. or I don't know that we always have answers, but we also know that it's not as gendered or as mystifying as people would like it to be. So... What's really gendered is, um, I would say, our response to it. Mm. The thought, no, women don't do that, or that's very unnatural, or how could a woman do that? Why would a woman do that? When we're not quite asking it in the same way of men. I think that that's probably, for me, the slightly scarier question. Oh, absolutely. Because I know certainly in my head, when mm-hmm. I knew I was talking to you today, I thought, oh, well, there must be different reasons for women yeah. to, to be involved in terrorism. But then that actually says something about how I've been preconditioned by society. And I think that's that's a harder nut to crack. Much, much harder nut to crack. And I think it it relates to how we understand terrorist activity. Um that terrorist activity is since the eighties only always been seen as illegitimate, seen as immoral, seen as wrong. Whereas previous to that there was more legitimacy and perhaps attempt to understand the violence before and and so and I think that is linked to how we understand gender dynamics and so if we think back where I said we have masculinist foreign policy and we can have a feminist foreign policy that if we have these masculinist values yet again of rationality of, of justice of um, engagement of po- in politics right that that is seen as very in a masculine sphere We've created um, a state government where we always see state violence as legitimate. So then state violence is always rational and state violence always has a reason. We differentiate between the state and terrorist violence. And so if the state, again, is always rational, always legitimate, always has a political purpose, terrorist violence is the opposite. I think if we really want to understand terrorist violence, we need to ask, why? What is the purpose behind the violence? What is their sense of legitimacy behind the violence? We don't have to say it's okay. It's not okay. It's not 
moral to go around killing people. Um, but I think we also have to then query wars. Mm-hmm. Are wars always moral? Are wars always just? Is you know are the way that we use drones in um, Yemen okay? And that's state violence, but we don't question it as much. We come into a time where where the government's saying we're going to stop historic prosecutions yeah. um, against uh, British officers or British um, soldiers who. I think it's specifically in Northern Ireland, but it's that idea of wiping out, uh, wiping the slate clean for the state. And I think that's a very grey area in Northern Ireland where you've got that um, for years and years, for decades, that conflict of of terrorist violence and perceived state violence and both sides of communities seeing the other as the aggressor. And that's engaging in that gray of recognizing there's more nuance here. Um, But how, again, we've historically talked about terrorist violence has been very black and white. And I think we need to engage in a little bit more gray and understand that some state violence is just not always legitimate. Abu Ghraib, Bagram, not legitimate, right? Of the soldier that was convicted of killing the Taliban fighter a few years ago, right, and quoting Hamlet as he shot him, that was judged as illegitimate. And we need to um, kind of recognize that and see that. And, and then that allows us to kind of think maybe perhaps more critically about how we allow foreign fighters to come back in. We have historically allowed foreign fighters back into the country because they are our citizens. That doesn't, again, say that what they've done is acceptable, but we also have, we have a judicial process for dealing with that. And with, like, Shamima Begum, who, you know, she was 15 when she went, and your critical brain is still not fully developed until you're, what, 24, 25? So as her critical brain is developing, as she's becoming an adult, yes, she made a really... I would say poor choice, right? Really bad decision. But as her critical brain is developing, she's in a war zone. She's losing her husband. She's lost three children. She has seen things that we would hope we would never see, any of us. And now we've also said, and you're not our citizen anymore, right? Um, Even though we have processes in place to deal with these foreign fighters. And again, that to me is led by gender, right? She was good, when she was a schoolgirl that we saw as naive or as groomed. And right, we're setting up this image of innocence. And as soon as she shows she's not really innocent and she's not quite the compliant child we would like her to be, we reject her. And that to me is a real knee-jerk reaction that doesn't show a whole lot of thinking and, and thought. And I, and I think we have to, again, think about why are we reacting to one person in this particular way? But does she not act as sort of a totem of oh, all your worst fears? Absolutely. She's, to me, I've always wanted, and I've done this a little bit, to really talk about um, female terrorists in the way that we talk about Medea, right? Where um, we've made this ancient Greek woman into this, you know, living hellscape, mm-hmm. Um and yet we've forgotten kind of these, this other backstory to her. And, and they become this totem for evil, right? So that I see Shamima as like this living Medea. And she's encapsulating all of our worst fears of, of, 
of women who make choices that we don't agree with. And we're always constantly confronted and somehow not getting past it. I mean, I so I use this as an example. There, um, Leila Khaled was a two-time hijacker for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. She hijacked a plane in 69 and 70. The 70 hijacking was unsuccessful. Her partner, not romantic partner, as gets mentioned in some cases, was killed by the air marshal. She was then detained in London for 10 weeks. She was never tried. She was only detained. She was released in a hostage swap for another hijacking. She lives fairly freely in Jordan. She's on the Central Committee for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Very, very well-known figure, right? She's become a figurehead in her own right. But when I tell people she was only detained, right? She was not held. She was not tried. She was not killed. She lives a relatively free life. You know, we saw the Palestinians in the late 60s, 70s very differently, right? That was a post-colonial conflict that was seen as a more legitimate struggle. But imagine that were to happen today, right? And I don't think she would have made it off the plane, you know, and she would have been vilified in much the same way. And we just, there was a different way of thinking about terrorist activity, political violence. So the way that, um, there's this really excellent book by Lisa Stamnitsky called Disciplining Terror. And she does this, she's doing kind of a historical um, investigation into how terrorism studies as a field evolved. And she looks at how in the, um, in the kind of, with the, I would say with the rise of the moral majority in the United States and this real emphasis on kind of using morality to understand politics and political and public life, right, as Reagan comes into office, um, that there was real, there was a real desire not to understand why different movements um, engaged in political violence. And that, that those terrorist activities went from being kind of post-colonial and seen within a semi-legitimate, not fully legitimate framework into one that um, violated kind of the moral order and moral society. So then any confrontation against, say, the U.S. Um, as the superpower for the first world, quote-unquote, um, got wrapped up in this language of morality. And so and that coincided with also kind of the rise in um, the, like the first intifada in Palestine, and we were seeing more uh, terrorist activity out of the Middle East as kind of predominantly white left-wing groups faded and as and especially faded, you know, with the fall of the Soviet Union in eighty nine, and so then it, when nine eleven happened, that just combined quite nicely with the Bush rhetoric, that was very kind of biblical, very civilizational at times, um, and so then whiteness yet again was reconfirmed. Right, Western Europe, Christianity as the moral way, and then everything else as as immoral. What are you working on at the minute? Um, because it does have links to religion, doesn't it? It does. I'm trying to work on it. So I've been head of school at um, in the School of International Relations for the past two years. Um, and so it hasn't given me as much time as I thought. Um, being in school during a pandemic does not give you much time outside <laughs> of that. 
Um, I'm working on hope. Um, my last, uh, my second to last book really looked at kind of what led to the election of um, Trump in the United States in 2016. So this is feminist Christian realism. Yes, this is that my book, uh, This American Moment, uh, a feminist Christian realist intervention, um, where I try to take Niebuhrian, Reinhold Niebuhr, major um, public thinker in the United States in the mid-century, um, and he articulated Christian realism, which is understanding that power exists, so how do we use it? in a way that kind of coheres with a moral or just vision. Um, And that's it in a snapshot. He's pretty nuanced, so that's not capturing him fully. And I tried to say, how do we make that kind of feminist? Um, And how do we kind of, his understanding of power and a feminist understanding of power are different. So how can we re-articulate a different understanding of power? And what was your conclusion? That it will take time. I mean, it's that epistemic shift again to get us away from thinking in terms that power always has to look a particular way, right, in that masculinist sense, again, of, um, of military power, of military might, of, um, you know, he, he, he had a love-hate relationship with nuclear weapons, but he articulated po- politics and power in a grand vision, right? State power, um, International relations is always between states. And I try as a feminist to come in and say, no, we can look at it in a much more individual, social way. And we can then articulate a different idea of what power is. Um, That we don't, that IR does not always have to be state versus state, but can be about people within that state um, and how we want to behave. So like in that book, I mean, particularly with Trump coming into power, I'd started it before he was elected, thinking that, you know, my first chapter would look at um, misogyny in America. My second chapter would look at racism in America. And then I'd be looking at the Hillary doctrine. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say that you'd be looking at the first female president. Right, exactly. And then I kind of consulted with my editor and just said, I don't think I can write on Hillary anymore, right? It doesn't make any sense. Well, we agreed that it had to be about, I wrote it about Trump and neo-fascism and seeing very much those as fascist influences that brought him into power and that we still see agitating. So my conclusion was actually pretty hopeless. Like I was fairly depressed, Um, had to like keep trying to make it a little more upbeat and visionary and and didn't have space to really begin to articulate what I, a hopefulness. So I've been kind of curious about hope and politics and what, um, and that's what I'm trying to work on. Um, but it's interesting. Um, theologians don't see hope as really a political process. There are some that do, um, and I'm trying to kind of cling on to them. Um, but that hope is, is very, is very much a personal dynamic. Um, when you get into it socially, it becomes quite fraught because kind of those with power don't need hope. Um, right. And, and we rely far less on power, whereas people on the margins are the ones where hope really resonates. So then how is in a position of privilege, do you talk about hope? Mm. How would you define hope? Theologically, it's really about recognizing salvation, right? 
um, really recognizing that there is more to come in the afterlife um, and the promises of, of redemption in Christ. Um, for me, and trying to articulate it in a political, public way, it's about perhaps trying to embrace that sense of grace and sense of, um, of redemption now, of, of say, you know, of, of compassion and of practicing compassion and of, of really trying to dismantle the power structures that lead people into hopeless places. So it's really, it's really about, I mean, it does go back to power, which is why I see it being fundamental to kind of answering this, un, this, this part of feminist Christian realism I haven't been able to tease out. Um, and so then how do we kind of become hope makers, right? Like, I think um, very much as, I mean, as Christians, but of any, I think any faith tradition, we are still here, right? We're not, there's not this monastic vision of separating ourselves away from the world and living for that next step. It's that we're here and we're meant to do something with our lives and we're meant to reach out to people. Um, and so then how do we best reach out to people? And I think that the challenge is to not be patronizing. The challenge is not to, to silence voices. It's not to overstep boundaries. Um, but it is very much to kind of try to amplify or walk alongside or um, to, you know, when um, someone or some activity is being overlooked to say, no, this has to be heard. And we have to do something with this. How do you think your work then translates into post-Christian societies? Mm. So into secular societies, maybe a more European context, where we don't have the same pull of the yeah. evangelical right as America no, does? No, that's an excellent question. I think it's a really tough question because in many ways, right, I didn't care about U.S. domestic politics until I moved here. Right, I mean, I cared, but it was not, my research area was not what I wrote about. And then all of a sudden I'm here and I'm speaking back to that audience. So I haven't written it as much with perhaps a post-Christian or European audience in mind, um, although I've been trying. So one piece that I'm working on on hope is about feminist foreign policy is hopeful politics. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also want to work on universities as a place of hope. And that, you know, that we've, I think we're in a period where expertise is undervalued, right? The university is undervalued and it is incumbent upon those in universities to speak back to governments and to society and say, this is our place and we're not an ivory tower. These are the things we're trying to do for everyone um, and that our knowledge is not just to serve us or to be navel gazing, but it is to serve all people. And um, that it doesn't, that we don't have to be these kind of, again, monasteries are in my head today and I don't, <laughs> know, I don't know why, but kind of these monastic communities that close doors, right, shut our gates and um, um, that's, that's all we do. It is um, really about trying to, you know, articulate why a university is important. I've also tried to think about 
writing an article that does purely remove hope from its theological grounds. And I don't, I haven't quite figured out how to do that or if I really want to do that. Taking hope into a different place needs some real thought. So, and there, there are people writing on it, and I have a book at home about hope and the university um, that I need to read. I just have this stack of books that are sitting there for when I can get to them. Thank you to Professor Karen Gentry for sharing her insights and explaining some of the work that she's doing here at the University of St Andrews. And thank you to you for listening. Look out for our next episode when we'll be talking to Vice Principal and Provost Professor Monique McKenzie from the School of Mathematics and Statistics. You can find all our episodes through your favourite podcast hosting service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do like, share and review. And never miss an episode by clicking subscribe to One Square Mile.